Welcome to the Mission North Shore podcast. If you'd like to know more about our ministry here at the Mission, visit us online at www.themissionnorthshore.org. Thanks for listening. God bless. We're going to spend a little time in the Old Testament today, and uh, then we'll we'll bring it to the to the New Testament, and then we'll apply it. Uh, but as we're turning to Exodus, this is chapter 34, verse 6. This is a part in Exodus where Moses has asked God, show me your glory. And God tells him, hey, you can't handle seeing my face, but I'll tell you about me. And God starts to describe himself. And it, it might be the only time in the Bible that God really talks about who he is, but he describes himself in this verse. And this verse is the most quoted verse in the Bible um, by the Bible. And, and we'll talk about some of those times that it comes up throughout the Scriptures. Um, so let's look at this verse, Exodus 34, verse 6. The Lord, the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and in faithfulness. I'll read it again. The Lord, the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness. Please pray with me. Lord, we thank you for this morning, and we thank you for this time that we can learn more about you Lord, and we pray that you would reveal yourself to us through the scriptures. Lord, I pray that I wouldn't be a distraction to this message. Lord, that I would decrease, you would increase, and you would speak the message that you have for this group this morning. We ask these things in Jesus' name. So good morning, I'm Dave. Thank you, Tripp, for another opportunity to teach. They say that people remember about 20% of what they hear, but about 95% of what they teach. So I think Tripp, after all these years, has realized the only way I'm going to learn anything in church is if I'm teaching. So thank you for that opportunity. And seriously, it's a, it's a blessing to teach again. And it says a lot about Tripp as a pastor that he would turn over the pulpit to a, a soldier like me, and I'll try not to tell as many war stories this time or to cry. Uh, last month, I spoke, though, about the broad mission statement for the church. And, and I based it on the Great Commandments and the Great Commission. And that broad mission statement, we summarized that we are to love God and to love others in order to inspire more people to become followers of God. And if this is our broad mission as Christians, um, it, doesn't, it doesn't take the place. It's, it's mutually supportive of the specific missions that God calls His people to. And God does call His disciples to specific missions. And looking around the room this morning, I see people who have answered the call to serve the Lord in various fields, from medicine to education, business, law enforcement, the military, surfing. And if God's called you to a profession, then your career is your mission field. And some have even answered the call to serve in ministry, whether once a week in Sunday school or full-time as a pastor or as a missionary. And those are all if they're callings of God, they're things that He has empowered you to do. And today, we're going to look at a person in the Bible, Jonah, and we're going to study the book of Jonah to ex- examine the way one particular person responded to one specific mission. And we'll learn some lessons about, we'll learn some lessons from Jonah about the topic of obedience, and most of it is what not to do when you're called by God. But what I really want you to take away from the story of Jonah is not so much that you don't want to be like Jonah, but it's more of how you should respond 
to a calling from the Lord based on who God is. And God reveals himself through the book of Jonah and through so many other examples in Scripture as a compassionate and gracious God. And that's the main takeaway that I want everybody to have. So let's turn to Jonah. If you don't mind turning in your Bible. Jonah's a hard book to find. It's uh, at the end of the Old Testament. It's the eighth to last book in the Old Testament. But all those books are really short. So the easiest way is go to Matthew and go back about 50 pages or so, and then you'll find Jonah eventually. Jonah is a pretty short book. It's four chapters. It's only 48 verses. And based on Tripp's average of about an hour per verse, if we go through this whole book, we'll be done by Tuesday morning. That's my goal. Uh, but now, hopefully you're, you're in Jonah now, and you're looking at chapter 1, verse 1. And let's read through this together. The word of the Lord came to Jonah, son of Amittai. And a quick background on Jonah. He lived about 800 years before Christ. He was a prophet under King Jeroboam II of Israel. And King Jeroboam II was the most powerful and wealthy king of Israel since Solomon. And Jonah was one of his prophets. And Jonah had prophesied accurately that Jeroboam would recapture and restore some of the territories that Israel had lost. And when he prophesied these things, they happened. And I'm sure he was handsomely rewarded by Jeroboam II. So when Jonah gets this call here in the book of Jonah, I'm sure he's living very comfortably in the kingdom of Israel. And let's listen to what God asks him to do. In verse 2, God says, Go to the great city of Nineveh and preach against it, because its wickedness has come up before me. That's a very clear mission from God. I had talked about last time, you know, doctrinally in the army, a mission statement has a task and a purpose. And this is a doctrinally correct mission statement from God. Go to the great city of Nineveh as your task and preach against it. Purpose, because its wickedness has come up before me. So to Jonah, receiving this mission, it's pretty clear, but it sounds probably pretty strange to him. Because Jonah's a prophet, and there have been many prophets before him. And he's the first prophet that's been called to speak God's word outside of the kingdom of Israel. So every other prophet, God has used to speak to the Jews within Israel. So this is a different calling. He's asking Jonah to go to Nineveh, which is about 500 miles away. It's in the Assyrian Empire. And to speak to people who are not Jews. Jonah's probably like, okay, that's, that's different. And... Let's think about what Jonah probably knew about Nineveh at the time. Nineveh, at the time, was one of the largest cities in the world. It would eventually become the capital of the Assyrian Empire. The Assyrian Assyrian Empire was growing um, in its size and its scope. And at the time, they were known for their cruelty toward their enemies and their warcraft. They were winning battles and they were doing awful things to the people that they were conquering. And that's what Jonah and probably everybody else knew about Nineveh at the time. The city was large, like I said, about 600,000 people, we estimate. And eventually, it would become the capital of the Assyrian Empire, and eventually the Assyrian Empire would conquer Israel in 720 B.C. Nineveh now, if you fast forward to, to modern day, Nineveh is the Iraqi city of Mosul. And Mosul's been on the news a lot lately. Um, as you probably know, ISIS leader Abu 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 Bakr al-Baghdadi declared himself the Islamic Caliph um, and the new Islamic Caliphate from a prominent mosque in Mosul. 
And today, at this moment in time, American and Iraqi forces are still actively fighting to secure Mosul um, as ISIS held it for, for about three years. Mosul is a city that I spent a lot of time in with some of the people in this room even. Um, most of 2004, 2005, parts of 2006, and, and a few years after that, our friend Charlie Bailey, whose family just moved from this church, he lost an eye and nearly lost his life uh, in Mosul. My friend Scotty Smiley, who a lot of you know, lost his eyesight and nearly died in Mosul, and dear friends of ours um, lost their lives in Mosul. So Mosul, historically a rocky um, and tumultuous place, and it's understandable why Jonah would be less than thrilled to leave the comforts of his life in Israel to go speak to people who aren't Jews and to speak in a place that's probably going to be hostile to him. So what does Jonah do? Verse 3, Jonah ran away from the Lord and headed for Tarshish. He ran away from the Lord and headed for Tarshish. Um, we got a map up, and Tarshish isn't even on this map, but we think that it's in what's now modern-day Spain, which would be off the map to the west. Jonah's here in Jerusalem, Israel, and he makes his way, instead of going to Nineveh, which is up here on the Tigris River, modern-day Iraq, he starts to make his way to Joppa. And it says in verse 3, he went down to Joppa where he found a ship bound for that port, the port being Tarshish. And after paying the fare, he went aboard and sailed for Tarshish to flee from the Lord. It's kind of funny that Jonah, who's a prophet and knows God pretty well, actually thinks that he could run from the omnipresent, omniscient God, but he does decide that he's going to try. And uh, it's kind of like our kids when, you know, even though they recognize our authority as parents, they're still often disobedient and sometimes outright defiant. Um, but, but each of us, you know, we, we, we each run away from God's will from time to time, and that's what Jonah does. And in verse 4 it says, The Lord, and this is while Jonah is now on this ship headed for Tarshish, the Lord sent a great wind on the sea. And this is the first of many divine interventions in the book of Jonah. And, and if you want to play a game, you can count how many divine interventions, also known as miracles, there are in this small book of the Bible. Um, and if you get it right at the end, I'll buy you a musubi after church. So try to count how many miracles, but this is the first one. God sent a great wind on the sea and such a violent storm arose that the ship threatened to break up. All the sailors were afraid and each cried out to his own God. Now I imagine any storm at sea is, is scary, but especially a God-inspired storm. And these sailors, who were probably pretty experienced, and we know that they probably weren't Jews because Israel was not a seafaring nation, um, but probably polytheistic pagans who worshipped many gods, they call out to their gods in this moment of peril as this storm is hitting their ship. And they also take action, desperate action. This is probably a transport ship. And it's probably the whole reason for the voyage is to deliver cargo. But they start throwing cargo overboard because they think that might save the ship. So taking desperate action are the sailors. Where is Jonah? You continue on. Jonah had gone below the deck where he lay down and fell into a deep sleep. And the captain went to him and said, how can you sleep? And that's a good question because there's a big storm on the ship at the time. The captain says, get up, call on your God. Maybe he will take notice of us so that we will not perish. And we don't know how much this captain knew about Jonah. We don't know if he knew Jonah was a prophet, but he probably at least knew that Jonah was a Jew and that Jonah was good for a few prayers to a God that they weren't already praying for. So it was worth a shot. 
Verse 7, the sailors said to each other, come, let's cast lots to find out who is responsible for this calamity. They cast lots and the lot fell on Jonah. Kind of an odd thing to do in an emergency, but they decide they're going to roll the dice and see who's responsible and they're going to do something about that. So they roll the dice and the lots point to Jonah. Another divine intervention because I believe that God arranged that outcome to point to Jonah for a reason. And when they did that, they said, Tell us, who is responsible for making all this trouble for us? What kind of work do you do? Where do you come from? What is your country? And from what people are you? And Jonah very honestly answered, I'm a Hebrew and I worship the Lord, the God of the heaven who made the sea and the dry land. And I think of being out on the recess yard and getting caught by the principal fighting and the teacher says, hey, who are you and what class are you in? And rather than trying to make something up, you're just so scared and you know you're already in trouble. I'm David Webb. I'm in Mrs. Simmons' class and and you just hope that it doesn't get much worse from there. And I think that's kind of the point Jonah was at. It was He was just, all right, God's coming for me. I'm surrendering. Do what you're going to do and just make it as painless as possible. And this terrified them in verse 10. And they asked, what have you done? They knew he was running away from the Lord because he had already told them so. That's kind of interesting that he told them he was running from the Lord. And they probably just thought he was this crazy old man when he first got on. But now they're realizing he's on to something. But they still are hesitant to put all the blame on him. And even though in verse 11 it says the sea was getting rougher and rougher, and they asked him, what should we do to make the sea calm down for us? He said, pick me up, throw me into the sea, and it will become calm. I know that it is my fault that this great storm has come upon you. And I don't think he's being very altruistic here. Like I said, he just probably wants it to end quickly. But they still decide that they're going to try to save the ship in their own power, and they try to row back to land. But they could not, for the sea grew even wilder. Than before, And they cried out finally to the Lord and said, Please, Lord, do not let us die for taking this man's life. Do not hold us accountable for killing an innocent man. For you, Lord, have done as you please. They didn't want to be held responsible for his death, but they were going to put him overboard. And they were acknowledging, even in this act, that they respected God's will. And then they took Jonah and they threw him overboard. And the raging sea grew calm. And at this, the men greatly feared the Lord, the Lord, our Lord, Jonah's Lord, and they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows to Him. So, pretty crazy story so far. Jonah runs from God. He ends up on this ship. A big storm comes. The sailors throw him overboard and they come to know the Lord. Which is a pretty crazy story in itself. But it gets crazier. And before it goes any further, and we, we get into the next part of Jonah's story, I just want to ask everyone a question. Do we, as a church, do we all believe that God, the Creator of the universe, whose Son Jesus was born to a virgin and died and was resurrected from the dead, can perform miracles? Do we believe that our God can perform miracles? I'm not twisting your arm, but I I do. I believe it. So, remember that He's the God of miracles, and we've already seen a couple in this story. um, Because what comes next sometimes is is dismissed as a fairy tale or maybe an allegory um, that, that Jonah didn't really get swallowed by a fish. But it says in verse 17, Now the Lord provided a huge fish to swallow Jonah, and Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. Now that sounds kind of crazy. And people have tried to explain that with science and, 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 and other ways or dismiss it altogether. But I believe that God intervened. He sent a fish. Moses spent some time in that belly of the fish and then God 
used his divine intervention to use Jonah afterward. Um, and, and, and just of note, the Jews, as they used this, prof, this uh, book of the Bible and, and biblical scholars throughout history, they, they use this as a historical record, not just as a, a nice story. And Jonah is referenced actually several other times in the Bible by Jesus himself and in 2 Kings when it describes Jeroboam and his prophets. Um, so I believe that this is a historical record and that this story is intended um, to teach us something about who God is. So chapter 2, from inside the fish, Jonah prayed to the Lord his God, trying to save himself, maybe. Maybe he's trying to save himself. Maybe he's just realizing he, he might die and he's trying to get right with God. But he says, in my distress, I called to the Lord. He answered me from the deep in the realm of the dead. I called for help and you listened to my cry. You hurled me into the depths, into the very heart of the seas, and the currents swirled about me. All your waves and your breakers swept over me. That's a reference to Psalm 42. I said, I have been banished from your sight. That's a reference to Psalm 31. Yet I will look again toward your holy temple. The engulfing waters threatened me. The deep surrounded me. Seaweed was wrapped around my head. That's from Psalm 69. To the roots of the mountains I sank down, and the earth barred me in forever. But you, Lord, my God, brought my life up from the pit. When I w- my life was ebbing away, I remembered you, Lord, and my prayer rose to you, to your holy temple. This is where it really gets good. Jonah says, those who cling to worthless idols turn away from God's love for them. But I, with shouts of grateful praise, will sacrifice to you. What I have vowed, I will also make good, and I will say salvation comes from the Lord. Jonah finally repents, and he displays the exact attitude that pleases God the most. When we acknowledge that we are failing to meet God's intent, and that we need His and only His redemption. And only He has the ability to save us from our sinful ways. Jonah gets to that point, And when he does, the Lord instantly restores him. And commands the fish in verse 10 to vomit Jonah onto the dry land. We don't know exactly where this happened or how this happened. But I'm sure it was kind of painful for Jonah. And he's probably somewhere near Joppa. Because I don't know how far he'd gotten away. But... He's definitely on the Mediterranean coast and he's still far from Jerusalem and far from Nineveh. And God speaks to Jonah again in chapter 3, verse 1. He says, Go to the great city of Nineveh and proclaim to it the message I give you. Again, he's giving Jonah the same mission. Go to Nineveh and proclaim my message. How will Jonah respond this time? In chapter 3, Jonah obeyed or sorry, chapter 3, verse 3, Jonah obeyed the word of the Lord and went to Nineveh. All right, Jonah, you're being obedient now. Maybe he is afraid of what God might do to him if he's not obedient. But we'll find out later, he doesn't necessarily develop a heart for the Ninevites, but he goes. He's going this time. And we've already talked a little bit about Nineveh at the time. The Bible gives a little more detail and says Nineveh was a very large city. It took three days to go through it. Jonah began by going a day's journey into the city, proclaiming 40 more days and Nineveh will be overthrown. And that's the only thing he quotes himself as telling the Ninevites. I I hope he told them more than just that. But we don't know. We don't know what his message was. We don't know what condition the Ninevites were in when they received this message. Um, But I think that if a foreigner was walking through Haleiwa telling people that in 40 days the, the city would be overthrown, it would not go over very well. But that's the message he gives to the Ninevites. And they respond in verse 5, the Ninevites believed God. 
a fast was proclaimed, and all of them, from the greatest to the least, put on sackcloth. Sackcloth was like a burlap kind of coarse material, and in ancient times people would wear it. Uh, they would wear it as a sign of mourning or repentance, and, and they put it on. And it talks about in further verses, they even put it on their animals. And when Jonah's warning reached the king of Nineveh, he rose from his throne, he took off his royal robes, he covered himself with sackcloth and sat down in the dust. And this was the proclamation he issued in Nineveh. By the decree of the king and his nobles, do not let people or animals, herds or flocks, taste anything. Do not let them eat or drink, but let people and animals be covered with sackcloth. Let everyone call urgently on God. Let them give up their evil ways and their violence. Who knows? God may yet relent and with compassion turn from his fierce anger so that we will not perish. This Assyrian king, who we know from history to be cruel and to be a warlord, he receives this message, this simple message from Jonah, a pretty lousy prophet, and he commands his entire kingdom to repent and call urgently on God. And he doesn't even know if God's going to come through and relieve him and his people. But he still calls them to do this. And what does God do? Just like God does so many times throughout the Scriptures, just like He did with Jonah when Jonah asked for repentance, just like He does with each of us, when God, verse 10, saw what they did and how they turned from their evil ways, He relented and he did not bring on them the destruction that he had threatened. So you'd think Jonah would be pretty pleased with this outcome. He just was a part of, well, he, he had his own redemption. He's not in the belly of the whale anymore. And he obeyed God and was part of perhaps the greatest revival in human history. You'd think Jonah would be pretty pleased. But chapter 4, verse 1 Jonah, to Jonah, this seemed very wrong, and he became angry. He prayed to the Lord, Isn't this what I said, Lord, when I was still at home? That is what I tried to forestall by fleeing to Tarshish. I knew that you are a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger and abounding in love. And with this, he's quoting from the verse in Exodus that we opened with. A God who relents from sending calamity. Now, Lord, take away my life, for it is better for me to die than to live. Jonah reveals in this statement to God why he ran from God and why he's unhappy now at Nineveh's revival. He thinks he knows better than God. He thinks that God's this gracious and compassionate candy man who gives the Ninevites something that they don't deserve. To Jonah, not only was this not worth being excited about, but he'd rather die than live with it. And he tells the Lord as much. And the Lord's reply to him, in verse 4, is it right for you to be angry? My translation of that is, Jonah, you're ridiculous. When our kids say certain things to us that are disobedient and defiant, you know, I don't respond the way the Lord did. Is it right for you to be angry? It's more like you're ridiculous. But God is, is gracious with Jonah, and He says, is it right for you to be angry? And Jonah, in verse 5, had gone out and sat at a place east of the city, and then he made himself a shelter. He sat in its shade and he waited to see what would happen to the city. And then the Lord God provided a leafy plant and made it grow up over Jonah to give shade for his head and to ease his discomfort. And Jonah was very happy about the plant. So even, even in Jonah's defiance and his bad attitude, God still wants the best for him. 
he still creates this leaf to give Jonah some shade. And I think about with our kids, you know, if they talk back to us and we send them to their room and they're maybe crying themselves to sleep, we still go in at the end of the night and, and we tuck them in and we make sure they have their blanket and we kiss them goodnight and, and we care about them. Now, the next morning they may wake up and still be grounded, but we care about them in the moment. And, and God cares about Jonah. But in verse 7, at dawn the next day, God provided a worm which chewed the plant so that it withered. And when the sun rose, God provided a scorching east wind, and the sun blazed on Jonah's head so that he grew faint. He wanted to die and said, it would be better for me to die than to live. But God said to Jonah, is it right for you to be angry about the plant? It is, Jonah said, and I'm so angry I wish I were dead. Verse 10, but the Lord said, you have been concerned about this plant, though you did not tend it or make it grow. It sprang up overnight, died overnight. And should I not have concern for the great city of Nineveh, in which there are more than 120,000 people who cannot tell their right hand from their left, and also many animals? And the book ends there. We got through the book before Tuesday morning. Um, so let's see what kind of applications we can draw out of it. But kind of a, a, you know, a cliff there. We don't know how Jonah responds to God as God explains you know, why he's having compassion and grace toward the Ninevites. But what we do know about Nineveh, you know, we, we know that it's a, it's a big city and it's eventually going to become a threat to Israel. And so when God says, you know, there are more than 120,000 people who cannot tell their right hand from their left, he's talking about the children in that city who don't yet know the right from their left. And then he's talking about their animals. In some translations it says cattle. That's how much wealth they have and how much power they're able to project is based on the animals that they have in that era. And so this is a city that Jonah and the Israelites should care about. This is a city that is going to become a threat to them, practically speaking. But also, that many people who don't know the Lord, God is concerned about their hearts and He wants them to have a relationship with Him just like He still does with each of us. But Jonah's not getting it. And instead, he's suicidal. And we don't know what God did with him um, because it's not recorded. Uh, but I do know from, from spending some time in, in Mosul, there's a, there's a tomb on the east side where Jonah was buried. And the, the Muslims actually have embraced Jonah. He's, he's written about in the Quran. Um, he's the only, besides Jesus, the only person to be mentioned in both the Quran and in the Bible. And they've built a, a tomb and a mosque, which has subsequently been destroyed by ISIS, but we would drive by that, that tomb regularly. And I know that, that, w- that the mark that Jonah made on that city is, has stood the test of time. But he never really appreciated it, at least to our knowledge. So as we try to apply this book of Jonah to our lives, what can we learn from this crazy story? Well, it's easy to beat up on Jonah. I mean, we could sit here and talk about all the things that Jonah did wrong, and we pointed out some of them. And and encourage one another to do the opposite when we're called by the Lord. But as I said earlier, I really want this message to be more about God and His nature so that when we are called, we know who's calling. And we remember who's calling. And we remember that God is a God of grace and compassion. So we'll pull out the things that we've learned in this story about God. Four points. One, God cares deeply about what's going on what's happening on earth, and he invites us at times to be part of the solution for the problems in the world. 
He knew what was going on in Nineveh. He knew the impact on his people, the Jews. And he invited Jonah to be a part of the solution. Even after Jonah proved himself unworthy and unfaithful, he gave him another chance and he used him. And God will do the same thing with us in our lives if we let him. Number two, God intervenes as necessary. He is a God of miracles. I believe it. Who is counting miracles in this story? I think there were eight. And that's the most, just fun fact, that's the most miracles per verse, or sorry, per book. Most miracles in the shortest amount of space in the Bible. So eight miracles I counted in 48 verses. The wind, the storm, they cast the lots, the fish that swallowed him, the fish that spit him, calming the storm, the plant, the worm, the wind. And I could personally tell you stories about miracles that I've seen and been a part of even in Nineveh or Mosul. And I know that a lot of you have similar stories as well, but I did promise Tanya that I wouldn't tell any war stories today. So if you want some, you can see me after. <laughs> Point number three, God allows us to suffer and disciplines us at times as necessary. And suffering is not always discipline. And discipline is not always suffering, but God does allow us to suffer and He does discipline us at times as necessary for His purposes. Sometimes the explanations come later. God explained Himself to Jonah. He didn't have to do that and He doesn't always do that with us. But sometimes the explanations don't come at all and we, it takes a few years for us to see why we suffered or why we were disciplined. But God is in control and His plan is perfect and it will come about in the end. Number four, and this is the one I want to close with and spend the most time on. God is a God of compassion and grace. He's compassionate to offer us opportunities to repent and He's gracious when we do repent. This was true for Jonah. This is true for the Ninevites. It's true for us. And this could be a whole other message, but I just want to emphasize this point by showing a few other verses. If we go back to Jonah 4, verse 2, Jonah quotes Exodus 34, 6, which we used at the beginning. If you could put Exodus back up on the screen. Jonah says, I knew that you were a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger and abounding in love, a God who relents from sending calamity. And as I mentioned, that's the most quoted Bible verse from the Bible within the Bible. And it's where God is explaining Himself to Moses. God explains that He is compassionate and He's gracious. He's slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness. And these words, compassionate and gracious, are used together in the Old Testament 13 different times when describing God. So it's worth looking at the meanings in our own modern language for those root words, compassion and grace. And I think there's a slide that shows those definitions. Compassion in our own lexicon is a sympathetic awareness of others' distress with a desire to alleviate it. We feel sympathetic toward others and we have a desire to help them out with their problems. Compassion to the Hebrews and in Jonah's day it's translated actually from the Hebrew word rakum, which comes from the Hebrew word rakem, which means womb. And the connotation for the, for the Jews is that compassion is the feeling that a mother or father has toward their child. And that's the type of love that God has that He showed to Jonah, that He showed to the Ninevites, and that He shows to us. Grace 
is a word that we use a lot, but let's look at the definition in our own era. It means free and unmerited favor. And the Bible consistently tells us that we're saved by grace, not by works. We're saved by the free and unmerited favor of God. And logically, grace springs from compassion. And that's why those words are so often used together. So it's not surprising that God would describe himself as compassionate and gracious. And it's not surprising that Jonah would know this about God and decide in his own little mind that even though he deserved that compassion and that grace, that the Ninevites did not. There's a story in the, in the New Testament where um, it's a parable that Jesus tells. It's the story of the prodigal son. Uh, where the father in the story personifies the compassion and grace of God. And Jesus uses this story to, to show people what God the Father is like. And in this story, the, the son, there's two sons, but one of the sons asks his father at a young age for his inheritance in advance, which is a pretty rude thing to do, I think, in any era, but especially in ancient times, this was about as disrespectful and defiant as you could be as a son, to ask for your inheritance early but the father grants it to the son he gives it to the son the son takes it and he squanders it through sinful living and when he runs out of money he's living homeless and just eating what he can find in the street and he decides you know what i'd rather go back and be a servant in my father's house than live like this maybe he'll take me back and as he goes back to his father's house let's look at luke 15 and let's read verses 20 through 24 He goes back home, and he hasn't even made it home yet. In 20, it says, But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion for him. And he, the father, ran to his son, threw his arms around him, and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you, and I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, Quick, bring the best robe, put it on him, put it on him, Put a ring on his finger, sandals on his feet, bring the fattened calf and kill it, and let's have a feast and celebrate. For this son of mine was dead, and he is alive again. He was lost, and he is found. And they began to celebrate. That is the kind of compassion and grace that the Lord has for us. And some of us are like Jonah. We've been called to be part of God's ministry to share that compassion and grace with the lost. Some of us are like the Ninevites. Maybe you've never heard about the love of God. You're lost and you're in need of repentant. Some of us are like that son who wandered off on our own. We had it good, but we wandered off, tried to do it our own way, and we need to come back. And what does the Scripture tell us about how God responds to those acts of repentance? Every time His arms are open wide and He welcomes us back into His arms. He's a compassionate and a gracious God He created us to be in a relationship with Him. He sent His Son to teach us to die for us, to pay the price for our sins, to rise again, and His Holy Spirit to come into our lives and empower us to share that good news with others. That's our God. If you don't know Him, today's your day. Get to know Him. Pray with me as we close in prayer, and you'll know that God. Lord, we thank You so much for this morning. We thank you for who you are. We thank you for your compassion. We thank you for your grace. Lord, we're sinners and we need redemption. We need to be saved from our sins and we can only do that through you and through your grace. The gift that you gave us, your son, 
who died for us by accepting that gift. He pays the price for our sins. And we can be saved and we can be in a relationship with you. You sent your spirit to live in us. And we thank you for that. We ask that your Holy Spirit would guide us and empower us to live for you every day and to help others come to know you. We ask these things in Jesus.